0: Imagine with me this morning that you're just out of college, about to start your first job, and your car is on its last leg, about to die. So some of you are like, "Oh, well, I don't have to imagine this. This, this is my current lived reality." But just, we, we've all been there, haven't we? It's way past time to replace the car with something more dependable. But then. In this thought experiment, imagine you go to the car dealership, you pick out a new car, you start filling out the paperwork, when one of the managers walks over and says that you're going to be getting this car for free. It just so happens, he says, that this is the 500th car the dealership has sold since opening and the owner wants to mark the occasion by giving away, giving away the car, the 500th car to you for free. What would you feel in that moment? You'd probably feel a strange mixture of confusion and relief wash over your body. Thinking, wondering, is this a joke? What are you talking about, bro? People don't give cars away for free. This can't be happening. This is too good to be true. But if this is true, I know I'm never going to forget this. And so you finish up the paperwork you walk out. And as you walk out, tears of joy well up. And you walk out with a new hopefulness and a new confidence about life and about the goodness of God. Someone has said, quote, The first thing that must strike a non-Christian about the Christian's faith is that it obviously presumes far too much. It is too good to be true. End quote. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that when we present the gospel to someone who doesn't yet believe it, it should seem unbelievable. It should strike them as an impossibility, as something that's made up, because offers like the offer of the gospel just don't exist in this world. You see, brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that God is like the the owner of that car dealership. Out of the abundant wealth of His love, He gives us mercy when we least expect it, when we don't deserve it. The fact that God, the God who created us, would want to live with us when we've done nothing but ignore Him and minimize Him and rebel against Him and disobey Him is unbelievable. It's beyond explanation. It sounds too good to be true that the holy God who spoke the universe into existence wants to enter into our lives with mercy and love and even, the Bible says, friendship. The first thing that must strike a non-Christian about the Christian's faith is that it obviously presumes far too much. It is too good to be true. If you missed it this morning, our training class was on Islam Next week, Buddhism and Hinduism. The thing that marks Christianity apart from all these other world religions is that grace is free. In Christ, it's free and abundant for all who recognize their need for it. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. It sounds to many, I hope it even sounds to us, too good to be true. Now, this too-good-to-be-true sensation is what we're going to come across in Genesis 33. So find Genesis 33, if you haven't already. In this text, in, in a way that no one sees coming, Jacob especially, Jacob's brother Esau comes to Jacob and lavishes love on him. showing us the unexpected and extravagant nature of God's love. We'll talk a lot more about that in a moment. The main point of this text and this sermon, though, is that God's love, like Esau's for Jacob, is unexpected and extravagant. God's love, like Esau's for Jacob, is unexpected and extravagant. There's going to be two parts to this sermon, two two movements in this text, and therefore two parts to this sermon. Number one, we'll see Jacob meet Esau, that's 1 through 11. Jacob meets Esau, verses 1 through 11. And then secondly, we'll see Jacob leave Esau, verses 12 through 20. Jacob leaves Esau, 12 through 20. So Jacob meets Esau, then Jacob leaves Esau. My prayer is that this text, in maybe an unexpected way, would remind us of the unexpected and extravagant love of God. Number one, Jacob... Meets Esau, verses 1 through 11. Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children. And Rachel and Joseph, last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And they wept And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Number one, Jacob meets Esau. This is an amazing scene. Jacob and Esau are finally meeting after 20 years. The air was surely electric at that moment. When Jacob sees Esau and his entourage approaching in verse 2, it says that he divides up his family again just like he had done in chapter 32. His favoritism is still in play, unfortunately, toward his favoritism toward Rachel and Joseph is evident by how he puts, uh, how Jacob puts them last in the company. Verse two, Ra- Rachel and Joseph, he put last of all, ensuring that they'll have the best chance of escape if things go sideways with Esau. But then verse three says that Jacob went on before them. The night before, it appeared that Jacob was sending his family first while he stayed at the back like a coward. Verse 22 of chapter 32, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children across crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So he sends them ahead and then stays back and wrestles with the Lord as we learned a couple weeks ago. But here in verse 3 of chapter 33, it says he himself went on before them. So... This shows us that the new Israel, Jacob's been renamed Israel, the new Israel is triumphing over the old fear-dominated Jacob. Perhaps his wrestling match with God left him with a new limp and with a new courage to protect his family. Now it also says in verse 3 that Jacob bowed himself to the ground seven times. He went before them bowing himself to the ground seven times. Times as he approached Esau. This is highly significant because Jacob surely remembers what his father Isaac had told him when Isaac blessed him, when he gave him the blessing that was rightfully Esau's. Some of those words go like this. This is from chapter 27, verse 29. Part of Isaac's blessing to Jacob was, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. But who's doing the bowing in this scene of reconciliation? It's Jacob bowing down before his brother. And by bowing before Esau, it sure seems to me that Jacob is trying to say something, to perhaps undo his great act of deception when he took the blessing that rightly belonged to Esau. He's bowing down to the one he deceived. Throughout this scene, we're going to see Jacob trying to give gifts to Esau, attempting to return the blessing that should have been Esau's. Now, perhaps this was all done out of a spirit of fear, that Jacob just doesn't want Esau to kill him. And so this is just self-preservation. Or perhaps the all-night wrestling match with God the night before broke something in Jacob's heart and not just his hip. Like Zacchaeus, do you remember Zacchaeus? The wee little man who climbed up in a tree so he could see Jesus. Jesus stopped and looked at him. I love that text in Luke 19. He stopped and looked at him. When no one else wanted to look at that guy, who stopped and looked? Jesus. Like Zacchaeus, perhaps God's love was leading Jacob to make restitution for people he'd hurt. You see, Zacchaeus came out of the tree, of course, goes and prepares a meal for Jesus and offers, because of this extravagant love he's received from Christ, offers to repay those he's defrauded fourfold. So maybe Jacob's just afraid. Or maybe Jacob's had a heart change. Or maybe it's a weird combination of both. Isn't that may be more true, certainly true of our lives. Fear and faith tangled up together in our hearts, often making it hard to discern which is which. No one, least of all Jacob, expected how Esau was going to respond. When I first read this text this past week, this verse jumped out at me like a grizzly bear and started wrestling with me. Left me alive (laughs) thankfully. There's a lot here for us, so we're going to linger here. Look at verse 4 again. But, but, see the contrast? Jacob walking up, bowing, 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 bowing. But, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him Can you picture that moment? Here's Jacob on the ground wondering what's going to happen. And here comes Esau, who he hasn't seen for 20 years. And the last time they were together, Esau, the text literally said, Esau was waiting for his dad to die so that he could kill Jacob. And out of nowhere, Jacob sees him sprinting forward, arms open, grabbing him. Even... You know, hugs are fun. I like hugs. You know, they can be awkward. Side hugs are okay, you know. But it says, embraced him and fell on his neck. I don't know what moves a hug or an embrace to the falling on the neck part, but it's got to be something else or Moses wouldn't have mentioned it. (laughs) So can you imagine the scene of Esau just grabbing his brother and falling on his neck? I don't know how to to describe it. Snuggling up to him. I don't know. Cozying up to him. Just falling deep into his embrace. This brother who defrauded him, stole from him, took what was rightfully his, and he runs to him with embrace and falls on his neck, kisses him. Now certainly kissing was probably different between brothers at that day and time. I don't know that many of us have as men kissed our brothers, I kissed my brother-in-law Rusty on, as we were leaving yesterday, just for fun, kind of. Uh, just to make it awkward on the way out, you know. Not on the lips, okay. Amen. But here it says they kissed. They kissed. They embraced. They fell on, he fell on his neck and he kissed him. This is a hugely surprising scene for Jacob. Jacob. He's on the ground in fear and trying to figure out if he's going to make it out of this alive, and here comes his brother running with hugs and kisses. Jacob expected revenge from Esau. At least he expected heavy bargaining to appease him. We, the reader, if this is the first time we read this, we have no reason to think that Jacob's fears aren't well founded. Jacob had stolen the birthright and the blessing from Esau, and Esau wanted to kill him. We would understand, therefore, if Esau killed Jacob on the spot. We would understand that. Nothing prepares us to see Esau running and embracing and falling on his neck and kissing and weeping with his brother. Esau has obviously had a heart change, a change of heart But why are we surprised? Why are we surprised when this is exactly what Jacob prayed for? Do you remember chapter 32, verse 11? This is part of Jacob's prayer the night before he meets his brother. 32, 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. Oh, how often do we ask the Lord to do things that we don't actually think that he can do. Esau's posture is the result of Jacob's prayer. As the hymn says, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Do you pray for sinners to come to Christ? Do you pray for your unbelieving friends and family members? Do you ask God to change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone? Do you pray for God to do the things that only He can do? And, and then when, when we pray, why do we kind of pray and then just assume it'll never happen? Huh. I'm asking the God who can create a universe to do something like raise the dead. And then I you know, think, well, he probably won't do it, can't do it. So I'm going to throw this, lob this prayer up there and go about my day. Esau changed because Jacob prayed. God answered his prayer. So he comes back. Esau comes back and doesn't kill him and gives him the exact opposite of what Jacob expected. Jacob is, is, is approaching with seven bows. Esau is approaching with hugs and kisses. All of Jacob's plans and schemes to appease his brother pale in comparison to his brother's joy upon his return. Esau lavishes unexpected and extravagant love on his wayward, wayward brother. This is not what we'd expect from Esau, just to make the point even further. Remember, Esau is the son who's outside the covenant promises of God. But yet here it's Esau, not Jacob, showing us something of the covenant love, loyal love of God. And even Jacob seems to pick up on this, for he says in verse 10 to Esau, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. And in his brother, Jacob sees something of his God. The language used here in verse 4 is picked up by Jesus in one of his most famous stories. The parable of the prodigal son. Remember that parable, that story? I won't read it all. It's rather long. You can find it in Luke 15, I think 16 and following. In the story, Jesus tells of a father who has two sons. One of the sons chooses to take his father's wealth, his inheritance, and run away and squander it in foolish living. But eventually, this son comes to his senses, and he decides to return home and make things right with his father. And in the story, after that, the unbelievable happens. And I'll let Jesus tell the rest here. Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him does that sound familiar he ran he embraced him he kissed him and the son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe the fattened, uh, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. So this father, in Jesus' parable, doesn't wait with folded arms and a ruffled brow for his son to come home. As soon as he sees him, he runs to him. As soon as he sees him coming home, he runs after him. Compassion wells up in in him, it says. He felt compassion and then runs. He takes off running. He grabs his son. He kisses him, embraces him, just as Esau does Jacob, before the son can even get his apology out. The God Jesus is describing here loves sinners so much that He runs to them in their shame. Now, later in the parable, and some would argue the main point of the parable, is that God goes after all kinds of sinners. You see, the end of the parable, the father goes after the self-righteous brother who's upset that their dad has been so extravagantly kind to the brother who's returned home. He begs, the father begs the self-righteous brother, to come into the party. And the son is like, no. Jesus, the point of the parable, Jesus, like Esau, moves towards sinners, whether unrighteous or self-righteous. Jesus isn't repelled by sinners. He moves towards them, wants them to come home. Jesus the one true and living God, unlike the gods of Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, sees us. And He sees us as more than just sinners. He sees us as friends. You'll remember that Jesus' enemies often called Him the friend of sinners. This accusation was laced with contempt. It wasn't a compliment. You friend of sinners. But, For those of us who hear that, it's a deep, that title for Jesus, it's a deep comfort for us because if we know ourselves to be in that category, then we can rest assured that we can have what Jesus offers his friendship. He's the friend of sinners, he's the friend of those who know themselves to be in that category. Friends, is that you? Do you know yourself to be in the category of sinner? That you've broken the commands of Almighty God? Not just once or twice, you know, like one time in high school or a couple times during college or whatever. Not that you're imperfect or that you just make mistakes, but that you have willfully and repeatedly preferred things that are not God over the God who made you. Willfully and repeatedly broken his good commands meant to give us life. Do you understand that that's the category that you're in? If you do, then this title for Jesus is a deep comfort, friend of sinners, friend of sinners. Sinners are the people who want to and are drawn to be around Jesus. Luke says at the beginning of that chapter, Luke 15, where we find the parable of the prodigal son, he says that sinners were drawing near to hear him. Those who knew themselves to be sinners therefore felt safe to be around him. It's the self-righteous who don't want to be around him. They assume that he's more like an employer than a friend. So they work their hands to the bone building an edifice of moral superiority and religious zeal so that others will assume that they're good with God when all the while their hearts are empty and cold and angry and frustrated and hard and devoid of grace. But those who feel the weight of their sin and shame and guilt are drawn to Jesus to listen to Him, to be around Him because they know their need and they know that He's sufficient to meet their need. Listen to how Dane Ortland describes Jesus as the friend of sinners and gentle and lowly. Of course, I've given all of you at least two copies of this book, right? If you haven't read it, read it before the year's out. Here's what Ortland says. What does it mean that Christ is a friend of sinners? At the very least, it means that he enjoys spending time with them. It also means that they feel, they feel welcome and comfortable around him. They are at ease around him. They sense something different about him. Others hold them at arm's length, but Jesus offers the enticing intrigue of fresh hope. What he is really doing at bottom is pulling them into his heart. End quote. Jesus, as Paul understood, as Kristen read earlier, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not to not to those not those who assume righteousness. Jesus came for sinners. He lived a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling God's law, hung on a cross in agonizing pain, rose from the dead so that sinners can be reconciled to the holy God who made them, so that God's judgment will be turned away from them, leaving only mercy and loyal love for them. The good news In the offer of the gospel is that everyone who acknowledges their sin and Jesus' sufficiency to forgive it will be forgiven. Like Esau, God runs toward those who understand their need and lavishes the abundant riches of His love on them, leaving them thinking, this seems too good to be true. But friends, it is true. Praise God, it's true that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Does that strike you as good news this morning? You're like, John, I just ate too much turkey. I'm just struggling this morning. I understand. I feel you. Does the news of Jesus as friend of sinners strike you as good and wonderful news again this morning? In Jesus, God surprises us with his vast and free and steadfast love. And when we Receive it, something happens. Something changes, something shifts inside of us. Look what happens to Jacob as a result of this unexpected love from his brother Esau. Verse 4 again, But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And then those last three words, and they wept. It doesn't say, and he wept. It says and they wept. Esau's approach broke something in Jacob. Jacob knew what he'd done. He knew that he deserved to die, to pay for what he'd done. But when he approached, when when he was approached with the warmth and love and affection and acceptance of his brother, emotion welled up in him that he probably didn't expect. And so it happens with those who come near the love of God in Christ. It often touches us and breaks us in places we aren't prepared for. Friends, how has the love of Christ touched your heart? How has it touched your life? How does it shape and change the way you see everything? And they wept. Jacob goes from bowing to weeping in the presence of this love from his brother, this unexpected, extravagant love. Now, after they have their moment, you know, I can imagine what all the soldiers were thinking behind Esau, like, come on, general, pull yourself together. So, they have their moment. The ice is broken. The would-be murderer has become a reconciled brother. So, they can start their conversation, which picks up in verse 5. Verse 5, Esau is curious. He's wondering who all these people are with Jacob. So Jacob introduces his family, who then also bow themselves before Esau, just like Jacob did. That's verses 6 and 7. Then verse 8, Esau asks about the barrage of livestock he's met on the way in verse 8. He's like, Jacob, why'd you send me all these animals? And Jacob tells him plainly, honestly, in verse 9, um, that it was a gesture to secure favor from Esau. <clears throat> Excuse me, end of verse 8, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. In verse 9, Esau says he doesn't need the gift. Then verse 10, Jacob insists that he have it. And in verse 11, Esau finally complies. Perhaps Jacob insists that Esau received uh, receive his gift because he couldn't be sure of his forgiveness if he refuses his attempt to make amends. And, and it just made me think, That, you know, isn't this also how we sometimes interact with God? We're hesitant to receive the extravagant, abundant wealth of God's love. we, We kind of assume there's strings attached. We're like, okay, God, I know you love me. I've heard that my whole life. But I know you also want me to live this perfect, pretty, beautiful life, to put forward an image of godliness. And then I know you'll really, be, you'll really be proud of me. You'll really be happy to call me son or daughter. So perhaps Jacob is struggling with what we struggle with. Unsure of whether the forgiveness of his brother is real or not. Perhaps he insists on this because he wants Esau to receive the blessing that he'd stolen from him. Note the word blessing used there in verse 11. Please accept my blessing. Either way. Jacob wants to give rather than take a blessing away from Esau. So their meeting here is unexpectedly warm, but it turns out to be unexpectedly short as well. As we move to number 2, verses 12 through 20, we see Jacob leaving Esau. So Jacob meets Esau. Now number 2, Jacob leaves Esau, verse 12, through the end of the chapter. Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let let my Lord pass on ahead of His servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord. And Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for himself, excuse me, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Jacob leaves Esau. So in verse 12, Esau invites Jacob to come with him to the land of Seir. That's down in Edom, Edom, the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. But Jacob courteously declines the offer, saying that his children and herds can't keep up with Esau and his band of warriors. Ironically, in verse 15, it turns out that the men that came with Esau aren't for battle with Jacob, but to help Jacob. Verse 15, Esau says, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob again refuses and Esau returns south to Seir while Jacob turns west to Sukkoth. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can follow this journey geographically. Esau continues south down to Seir. They're up by the Jordan River on the east side of the Jordan where the Jabok, Jabbok, Jabbok, however you say it, hits the Jordan. Esau goes south. Jacob goes east, excuse me, west towards the Jordan River and ultimately into the land of Canaan. Interestingly, though, Jacob says at the end of verse 14 that he'll eventually, quote, come to my Lord and see her. <laughs> so he says, go on ahead. My kids are going to take too long. Parents, amen. It's like, can't go anywhere in less than an hour. Can't load the van in less than an hour. You know, kids, livestock, going to take... I'll be there eventually. I'll come to my Lord in Seir. That's where he's headed. But it appears that Jacob never had any intention of doing that. As verse 17 indicates. 17, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth. Seir south, Sukkoth west. So he didn't go even the right direction. As Esau. What's going on here? Well, perhaps Jacob doesn't trust Esau. Maybe he thinks that Esau's charity wouldn't last and conflict would eventually rise between them. But there could also be a theological reason why Jacob doesn't go to Seir with Esau. Remember from a couple chapters ago, Jacob wants to go home. He wants to leave Laban and return home. The Lord then tells him to return home to the land of Canaan. Seir is not in Canaan. Jacob's father Isaac is not in Seir. So maybe this is why Jacob turns west toward Canaan instead of south toward Seir. Either way, though, Jacob says one thing but then does another. I'll meet you down there in Seir eventually, and then he goes another way. What's going on here, Jacob? Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Jacob acts in a somewhat slippery way. We've seen this with Jacob, haven't we? The reasons why people like Jacob and you and me do things aren't always clear to even the people doing them. Don't we see character glitches all over God's servants in the Bible? There are disappointing inconsistencies that given their allegiance to the Lord, uh, to the Lord shouldn't be there. This is true for all of God's people, even our heroes this week, uh, came across this story from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, for example, was was not a model Christian in his health-impaired later years. Biographer Roland Bainton says Luther became, quote, an irascible old man, petulant, peevish. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad. (laughs) Petulant, peevish, unrestrained, and at times positively coarse. End quote. Luther refused to recognize Zwingli and the Swiss reformers as Christians. One contemporary, a contemporary of Luther said of him, quote, since he has lost control of himself, he believes that the greatest sin and the most unfair act in the world is to criticize him. We have here a miserable creature who smashes heaven and earth because we've told him that he too, as a man, might err. End quote. This is Martin Luther. Luther, the champion for the gospel, champion for God, has this kind of behavior that shouldn't mark those who serve Christ, even in our later years. Ironically, earlier in his life, Luther had counseled the Christians in Wittenberg to be patient with their enemies while he was away in the castle at Marburg. I think it was Marburg. I might be wrong about that. Anyways, he was in the castle castle for a year. Uh, He gets word that uh, the people in the town are smashing Catholic altars, images, shrines, stained glass windows. So the town leaders asked Luther to come back quickly, and he does. And he tells these people, these radicals, who were trying to, quote, push reforms down the throat of the community, that they needed to give people time. To give people time. It took Luther three years of study to see what needed to be, ta- uh, needed to be done. How could people be moved to welcome reforms in three months? Luther said, quote, You are wrong to think that you get rid of an abuse by destroying the object which is misused. This is great wisdom for us, by the way, in our context, in our culture. Listen to Luther. You are wrong to think that you can get rid of an abuse by destroying the object which is misused. Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we prohibit wine and abolish women? Sun, moon, and stars have been worshipped. Shall we pluck them out of the sky? Your haste and violence reveal a lack of confidence in God. End quote. The point here is that Luther and Jacob and you and me don't drop out of the sky fully formed into the image of Christ. Amen. We need to, as Luther said, give people time. Give people time. Give people time. We don't excuse, we shouldn't excuse deviousness or inconsistencies. We call things what they are, but we don't expect people to be where we are when it's taken us a lifetime to get there. And we're not shocked when sinners sin. And as a church, this means for us that as a church, we need to be, and I think we are, by the way, a place where sinners are helped, not scolded. Scolding will never change someone's heart. We can say what is true without being scolders. We need to increasingly pray that God would make us a church that moves toward sinners like the Father who had a heart that welled up with compassion and ran out towards his son that was coming home. A church that moves toward sinners, not away from them. Jacob teaches us that even people who wrestle with God and walk away with a limp and a blessing also walk away with a sin nature and an everyday need for sanctifying grace. Now, there's a detail in verse 18 that we don't need to miss. This is the last thing I want to draw your attention to. Verse 18, it says that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. You may see where I'm going with this. In his commentary on these chapters called God's Rascal, which is the best commentary title for Jacob's life ever, God's Rascal. Del Davis says that this clause in the land of Canaan ought to be in blinking neon lights in the land of Canaan. This detail means that God has fulfilled the promise He made to Jacob in 28-15. Remember what God says is Jacob is fleeing his murderous brother on his way out of Canaan. When the the ladder, the staircase appears in his dream, Twenty-eight, fifteen. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, go and will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's amazing how subtly God's faithfulness appears in this text. We would walk right by it if, it weren't, if we weren't reading it carefully. It's hidden away in this little prepositional phrase in the land of Canaan. He settles near Shechem in the land of Canaan in the land of Cain, and God has done for him what He said He would do in 28:15. Sometimes God's faithful, the faithfulness to us is big and obvious for all to see, but brothers and sisters, can't we agree that sometimes God's faithfulness in our lives is quiet and unnoticed by most, but crystal clear to those of us who see it, who experience it, who receive it. Sometimes God's faithfulness is huge, but unseen by most. I wonder if you're looking out for that kind of stuff. For the myriad ways God is proving himself faithful in your life, day after day, moment after moment. When God made that promise to Jacob, it looked highly unlikely because Jacob was headed out of the land of Canaan and would face a scheming uncle, bickering wives, daily drudgery for 20 years, the threat of fraternal vengeance and hard labor. But God's word held firm through many dangers, toils, and snares. God's amazing grace came to Jacob in the embrace of his brother Esau and in his safe arrival to his home in Canaan. God gave Jacob more than he could have hoped or imagined. Now, friends, this isn't accidental or incidental to the storyline of the Bible. As Jesus' disciples, we need to know whether our God is faithful to his promises or not. Now this text, that prepositional phrase in the land of Canaan and thousands more like it in the Bible, tell us that he is. The truth here, this truth gives us hope so that when we hear Jesus say things like, and I'm just picking a promise out of hundreds. When we hear Jesus say things like, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you? We can hear that and hang on to it because we know it comes from lips the lips of one who speaks with complete candor and absolute reliability. We can rest all our weight on his promise. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God did what he said he would do with Jacob and what he'll do with us. What he says he'll do with us, he will do. Jesus will come back for us, bring us safely to his house and we will live with Him. This is why we sing, Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. So when we see these little prepositional phrases tucked away in obscure corners of the Old Testament, and we remember the promises of Christ in the New Testament, we rejoice that God's Word will come true. As Jesus said, if it weren't so, why would he tell us? Why would he waste the oxygen to tell us? So let's land a plane. In this text, we've seen Jacob meet Esau, and Jacob leave Esau. We've been reminded, I pray, of God's unexpected and extravagant love. This is a perhaps obscure, but I hope beautiful text. It shows us how Jacob's wrestling match with God prepared him to meet his brother. Courage was replaced with cowardice. Excuse me. (laughs) Excuse me. Get that backwards. (laughs) That would not be as good. Courage replaced cowardice. Humility replaced arrogance. Penitence prompted Jacob to give back the blessing that he'd stolen from Esau. Jacob has truly been reborn as Israel But we also see that Esau has changed. The would-be murderer receives his prodigal brother with over-the-top affection. He even invites Jacob to come live with him and seer. Such an invitation after so many years of hatred makes this offer sound too good to be true. The full and free forgiveness that Esau gives his deceitful brother is a picture of God's surprising love for us, for his people, as even Jacob seems to understand. In you I have seen the face of God. That's what he says. Have you ever said that to someone? He saw something of God in his brother, the way his brother received him. This is why Jesus uses the language of this scene when describing God's extravagant welcome for anyone who realizes their need for him comes to their senses and runs home. This text also shows us that Jacob's new birth didn't obliterate his past or completely change his character. (laughs) He said, I'll see you later, and he never makes that trip. The new Israel still has features of the old Jacob. He doesn't seem to entirely trust Esau's acceptance of him. His old fears and suspicions still lurk in his heart. And this reminds us of our reluctance to trust God entirely despite the extravagant displays of His love and faithfulness toward us. And the place we need to look again and again to see this extravagant love and faithfulness is the piece of wood that Jesus hung upon for you. Do you believe that He hung on the cross for you, for your sins? As he hung there, you might picture him running to embrace sinners who would come home. Now by the end of the chapter, we may think that the story of Jacob's life has reached its conclusion. Israel is finally home in the land promised to Abraham. But as we'll see next week, what looks like a great resolution proves to be the beginning of a tragedy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would please take your word and help us to sift through it and that you would sift us by it. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to see ourselves as we are in Christ. Help us to think carefully about how you love us, what it means when we say that God loves us, Help us to think and consider Jesus as friend of sinners, as one who moves towards the unrighteous and the self-righteous. Truth be told, we are all a little bit of both. All of us think too highly of ourselves, and all of us have done unnameable, despicable things. And yet you move towards us. You come to us not waiting for us to clean up our act and get our stuff together and get behaved and get right and you know clean up everything that's dirty lord you just moved towards us when we were dirty and you've started the process of making us new of conforming us more and more to the image of your son would you continue that good work in us Would you help us to think often on these things? Would you help us to be a church that invites, welcomes, embraces, loves sinners without forgetting truth? Help us to run towards those who desperately need you, just as you ran towards us. Father, we need you. Send your spirit to help us take your word and Plant it deep in our hearts. May it bear much fruit, 20-fold, 30-fold, 100-fold in our lives this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.